All right, we're in Mark chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. Uh, you don't have to stand tonight because I'm going to read the whole chapter. And, uh, and let, me, let me just, we're going to jump right into it. Sweet time of worship. Don't, wanna, don't want to break what God's doing here. Um, but I'm going to handle this chapter a little differently than we normally handle large sections of Scripture. Oftentimes, you know, we're going piece by piece, but um, sometimes when we do that, we can, we can compartmentalize sections of Scripture and, like, miss the overall picture that uh, is being given uh, because there's a lot of different things moving in this chapter, but they're all connected. So I'll pray, no, I'll read, we'll pray, and then we'll study. The Bible says in verse 1, now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And when they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they said to them what Jesus had said, which by the way is always good, a good thing to do. And they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it and many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut down from the fields, or that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then note this in verse 10, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered uh, Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, he the, the word look means to uh, scrutinize. Uh, when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany, just a couple miles away, with the twelve. That's where he stayed every night uh, during the Passion Week. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree, a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. I'll explain this later. That's what they were doing. They were using the temple mount as a shortcut uh, to get to the Mount of Olives, a total disregard for the sanctity of what was happening there. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them. This is going to be our focal point tonight. Have faith in God. 
Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received. I just want you to note the verb tense of all of that, not that believe that you will, but, but, but believe that you have received, and it will be yours. Like, it's as good as done. Do you pray with that type of confidence? Do you think you could grow in praying with that type of confidence? Okay. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And then it wraps up here. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. This is so cool. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Father, thank you so much for your word tonight. And uh, God, it is true, there's so much. There's so much that's just been given to us. So many resources in the kingdom, so much that we have through the king. God, so much that's untapped, untested, untried, unexperienced. And we, we ask, God, that you would, that you would help us to have the, the discipline and the desire. God, give us the want for more of you. Give us the want for more of you. God, give us the, the will to shape our attitude and behavior so that we lean more deeply into dependence upon you. And God, that our lives truly would reflect in a greater way the kingdom of heaven. Father, we pray that there would just be a, from this time together tonight, that there would be an explosion of, of prayer in this church, uh, we are a gospel preaching church. We are a Bible teaching church. We uh, are a church that loves people with your love. We want to be a praying church. God, we want to be, be a church that intercedes. And so, Father, begin something wonderful tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you guys know this Story. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Uh, if you're not, there's little titles above each of the different paragraphs that kind of gives you an idea of what's happening here. And of course, you know, we've really entered in earnest now um, the Passion Week of Christ. This is the final uh, seven or so days plus resurrection appearances, but really focused on, you know, these seven days where Jesus came into uh, the city of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives in, the, in what we call the triumphal entry. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Um, and then, of course, he had these days in Jerusalem um, as he was ministering and as he was preparing his disciples for what was coming um, not that they hadn't been told, but they really didn't get the full picture. Uh, obviously, we're talking about his suffering, his crucifixion, his death, burial, and ultimately his resurrection. Um, this really is 
the beginning of the Passion Week, like I said. And for the most part, in fact, it's just true for all of the gospel accounts, uh, this really is the focal point. The vast majority of the information in the gospel accounts are oriented around these seven days. Um, this is a familiar story with us because, you know, this church is familiar with the prophecy of Daniel and Daniel chapter 9 and how this day had been uh, appointed by God. This was the moment that Jesus chose to reveal himself to the nation of Israel, um, not just as their Messiah, but as their king. This is, this is why, by the way, it's called a triumphal entry. I mean, there's this, there's this framework of uh, royalty and this framework of kingdom that's oriented around this moment because Jesus was presenting himself as the king of Israel. Uh, remember, when it comes to the person of Christ, there are three biblical roles that Jesus fulfills. He is the king, he is the priest, and he also is the prophet. He is the king, he's the priest, and he also is the prophet. These are three roles that Jesus uniquely is able to fulfill. You say, well, wait a minute. Weren't there people in Israel that were, uh, they were a king, uh, or maybe they were a priest, or they were a prophet? And I say, yeah, that's true, but those people only fulfilled one of those roles. Jesus uniquely filled all three of those roles, uh, and the Old Testament sets him up to be the fulfillment of, and I'm using the definite article here, the priest, the prophet, and the king. He is the prophet according to Deuter Deuteronomy chapter 18. You can go back and read this scripture later on. Moses was talking about uh, and Peter preached on this the second time he preached in the book of Acts. Moses was talking about the prophet that God would send that everyone would need to listen to. Uh, and there would be consequences based on whether or not they responded to his word. So he is the prophet, the fulfillment of what God spoke through Moses. He is the high priest, not according to the line of Levi or according to the line of Aaron because Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. And so his, his, his high priesthood did not come through the Aaronic line. You guys know because you've read Hebrews chapter 7 and you know the story in the book of Genesis when Abraham was standing before Melchizedek, the king of Salem or the king of peace. Jesus is a high priest according to uh, Melchizedek and that was laid out in the book of Psalms. Now we also know that Jesus is the king because the Bible says, and I'm going to give you three sections of scripture here tonight. I'm going to read through these this evening, uh, and this lays out to you why Israel was looking for a king. And you need to remember this because this is really important as you're looking at uh, the gospel accounts. Israel had this expectation that the Messiah was also going to be a king. Well, why did they have this expectation? And not only was he going to be a king, but he was going to come in the kingdom of their father David. So there was a connection between Messiah and between David. And that was because God gave David a promise. Right? We're talking about God gave Abraham a promise. That promise was through Judah, through the house of Jesse, uh, and, and, and ultimately through David. And so the promise goes like this. You remember David wanted to build God a house uh, because he's looking at his house of cedar and how opulent it was. And then there was really just the tabernacle uh, that was for the Lord and the presence of the Lord. And so Nathan comes and Nathan says to him, 
Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you, David, a house. This is 2 Samuel 7.11. Nice, easy way to remember it, all right? 7.11. I just triggered some of you. You're like, your hands started shaking because you eat those hot dogs and drink their coffee. And you're going to die if you do that, all right? So cut it out. He said, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom, and this is the key, forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. David understood that God here was not just talking about the next son of his that would take over the kingdom, but that this was a messianic prophecy. We know this to be the case because the Isaiah, pro- the Isaiah prophet, Isaiah the prophet, Later on would say this, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called. You guys know how this goes? How's it go? Wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, right? That's what we say at Christmas. But then he goes on to say, of the increase of his government and of Uh, Peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So, So, the prophet just reiterating the promise that was given to David through Nathan the prophet. And, you know, uh, reminding us so many years later that this was the expectation of Israel. Well, Zechariah would say this in Zechariah 9.9. He would say to Israel, behold, your king is coming to you just having salvation and lowly. So I'm tying all of these together because this moment uh, was, was exactly the moment that had been prophesied not only by Nathan and not only by Isaiah Uh, but also by Zechariah. And so when we read that there were leafy branches that were laid down and people were taking their cloaks off and setting them before Jesus as he was riding on the colt, the foal of a donkey, um, this is the picture of a royal procession. I mean, we're kind of aware of this right now because, you know, we're watching the news and Queen Elizabeth just died. And and so, you know, there's all this pomp and circumstance in this royal uh, procession. It's a Rolls-Royce hearse or something like that. I don't know. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a donkey. Um, it's way more sophisticated. But this is exactly what we would expect when royalty dies. Well, this was what they would expect when royalty came into town. And so what's happening here in this moment is he's identifying himself as the king. And as the king, as he goes up onto the temple mount, the Bible says that he just looks. He looks over everything. And the word, like I said, means to scrutinize. It means to inspect. Um, There was evidently a displeasure on the face of Jesus. He doesn't do anything on this Sunday evening um, because the cleansing of the temple would come later. But there is evidently an expression of dissatisfaction on his face as he is looking at all of the different things happening on the Temple Mount. And of course, remember with me, um, we're talking about the Feast of Passover. And so, you know, there would have been up to 100,000 people gathered on the Temple Mount during this feast. But there was a business that had been developed where people literally were being ripped off as they were just coming 
uh, to worship the Lord. So he goes to Bethany. Um, he comes back. On his way back to the temple, he would spend that next day on the Temple Mount, um, cleansing the temple and also teaching. But as he does, verse, uh, verses 12 to 14 give us a really peculiar story. As they're walking on their way to Jerusalem, there is a fig tree that's in leaf. And Jesus approaches the fig tree, and as he gets to the fig tree, he finds no figs, and so he curses the fig tree, and he says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Now, this seems to be a totally disjointed piece of the story here. In fact, commentators over the years have had a hard time finding out how this fits, but it, in fact, does fit perfectly because he's preparing his disciples by giving them a picture of what was happening in the spiritual realm. Remember, Jesus always did things with intention. Um, I think that some of us, we just, you know, we learn better when pictures or illustrations or metaphors are given. And so this whole situation with the cursing of the fig tree was exactly that. It was a picture for his disciples to understand what was happening with respect to the nation of Israel, Israel in a spiritual sense. Let me say it a different way. He gave them a picture in the physical world of what was happening in the spiritual world. He gave them a picture in the physical world of what was happening in the spiritual world. And, you know, some people look at this and they think, man, that's really not, that's not it's kind of mean, you know, like why did he curse this poor fig tree? It's, the figs aren't even in season. Why did he expect something from this tree when really uh, there shouldn't have been any expectation? But, but there was an expectation. Remember with me, we'll talk about this in a minute. The fig tree in the Bible always represents what? It always represents the nation of Israel. And so you'll, you'll see that Israel is represented by a vineyard, it's represented by an olive tree, and it's also represented by a fig tree. And if you look at the his, history of Israel, uh, different eras are represented by different trees. When Jesus is cursing the fig tree, there's a tie, there's a connection for his disciples immediately because they know that the fig tree represents the nation of Israel. There's leaves that are on the tree. It's not the season for figs, but fig trees often would put off uh, first ripe figs that were out of season. And so even though it wasn't the season for full figs to come, what you could expect when you approached a fig tree that was out of season but had leaves was that there would be these small figs that were high concentration, sugar, and, um, and everybody enjoyed. And so when he gets to this fig tree, there should have been this promise of fruit, this expectation that there would have been fruit. And this is kind of where the illustration ties in. But as he gets there, like there's, there's, this, there's this scene on the outside that gives an appearance that everything is good, but the reality is there was no fruit. In verse 15 down to verse 18, Jesus cleanses the temple. Um, how many times did Jesus cleanse the temple during his earthly ministry? Do you guys know? He, he cleansed the temple twice. So at the beginning of his ministry, he went to the temple mount. Uh, he cleansed the temple. Uh, I do believe that he was preparing the people. He was giving them an opportunity. It was like a shot across the bow. Uh, it was an opportunity for them to 
uh, prepare themselves for Messiah, to repent of their sin. Um, and three years later, nothing had changed. Now, about 37 years from this point, uh, the temple itself would be totally destroyed by the Romans. Um, but for our story here, right, he cleanses the temple and then he expresses to them how far off the path they had gone because the purpose of the temple was that it would be a house of prayer for all nations, a place where people would be able to meet God and not just the Israelites or the Jewish people, but, but all nations coming and being reconciled, reconciled, excuse me, or being restored to the Lord. And that is exactly what didn't happen. And yet he'd given them an opportunity to repent, an opportunity to come to their senses, to take the warning and to prepare themselves for Messiah. This is a side note tonight, but I do just want to encourage all of us when the Lord gives us a warning, when the Lord brings conviction, you know, when the Lord brings an awareness that there might be something off in our life, Maybe it's like full-blown sin, right? We're doing things that displeases the heart of God. And so in his grace, he convicts us by the Holy Spirit. Sometimes he sends a messenger to us like God sent Nathan to David as he had committed sin uh, in murdering Uriah the Hittite and then also sleeping with his wife, wife Bathsheba. Maybe, maybe uh, it's not a prophet. Maybe it's not a major sin. Maybe for us, it's just a weight, you know? It's something that's ensnared us. The Bible says that, that weights and sin ensnares us. And so those are things that we turn away from. So it might not be full-blown sin, but sometimes the Spirit of God convicts us. And it's like, hey, this thing isn't necessarily an altogether bad thing, but it's not a good thing for you spiritually. It's distracting you. It's holding you back. It's an obstacle to you growing in relationship with me. And all I'm saying to us tonight is this. When God gives that warning, we need to respond immediately. We need to respond immediately. Somebody said this some time ago. Um, I do believe it's true. The devil's word is tomorrow and God's word is today. Right? The devil will be there all day long saying to us, hey, you can fix this later. You can sort this out later. This really isn't a big thing. It's just a small compromise. Um, it, it, you know, it's not going to cause major problems, but you know all it takes is a little fire in the bosom, the Psalms say. And you, know, you can find yourself down the road in sin, doing things that you never thought that you would have ever done while they began with a small compromise. And when that compromise initially happened, there was a sensitivity to the Spirit of God, an awareness that God was displeased with this thing and revealing to you, perhaps, that it wasn't good for you. And instead of taking the moment right there, because God's word is today and the devil's word is tomorrow, God says now, the devil says later, instead of responding in the moment, you postpone it, and then you postpone it a little longer and, and pretty soon you find, find yourself having drifted from God. I don't know what he has been speaking to you today about. I'm not sure what maybe minor adjustment needs to happen in your life, some fine-tuning spiritually. Listen, maybe you've been growing, and thank God for the maturing that's happening in your life, but maybe there are some more things that God has been seeking to dial in for you and you know there's just been some resistance, and you know how we are. We can even say to God, hey, you know what, I've come a long way. 
God, I've come a long way. Like, pat me on the back. I'm, I am so much better. This is sometimes how we justify compromise. I'm so much better than I used to be. God, you know, cut me some slack. Let me have a little space. And we can, you know, we can find ourselves justifying sin because of how far we've, we've come spiritually. But you know that all of that is just a justification to continue to do the wrong thing. God, when he's making those fine-tuning adjustments in our life, what he's looking for is obedience. When it's straight up the conviction of his spirit and he's calling us out on something that's unhealthy for us and unhealthy for our family and unhealthy for the body of Christ, you know, his expectation in that moment is obedience. There for sure is something to learn here um, from these people, you know, who had had their tables already turned over. Look, I don't want to go too far down the road on this, but thank God he turns our tables over. Thank God he turns our tables over. Thank God for the disruptions that he brings into our lives. Thank God that he shakes us in those little comfort zones that we've made for ourselves because you know we can make these little lifestyles that are comfortable that are just filled with stuff that's not healthy for us spiritually. And you know, like, like a snow globe, God will come in and he'll turn our lives upside down. And we're like, what's this all about? Come on, God. You know, what's this all about? God's like, I need to shake you right now because you've become settled in something that's not pleasing to me. I need to shake you right now because what's happening in your life is, is not healthy for you. It's not good for you. And we're all mad that he's shaking us and we're discomforted when we ought to be leaning our spiritual ear into the voice of our heavenly father saying, what are you trying to show me? God, what are you trying to show me? I, I don't like this. It doesn't feel good. But God, you don't just allow these things to happen for naught. And so what is it? What, what, what have I been missing? And what do I need to take away from this? This was a serious issue for Israel because you know the temple was the place where the covenant was being fulfilled. The temple was the place where people were connecting with God. It was the place where the presence of God was poured out. It was the place where people were turning away from worshiping the creature and they were turning to worshiping the, the creator. It was the place where God was like reversing the curse in an Old Testament sense where people had the opportunity to be image bearers once again, to be in right connection with the Lord and to experience the power of his presence. You know, the... Uh, the Romans used to say they remarked about the nation of Israel because there was a sea where there was nothing that was alive. Uh, there was a day where no one worked and there was a temple in which there were no idols. Like for the Roman people, this was something they just couldn't get their brains around, right? There was a sea, the Dead Sea, where there was nothing that was alive. There was a group of people that shut everything down on a particular day, the Sabbath, that was totally anti-Roman culture. Um, and then there was this temple. Every Roman temple, every Greek temple had an idol that was worshipped, but, but there was no idol that was worshipped in this temple because God was the one that was worshipped in this temple. 
And so when the Bible talks about money changers, you know, people bringing their Greek drachma or some other foreign currency, and because they had to offer, you know, a, a temple shekel as an expression of worship, when they exchanged their foreign currency for a temple shekel, it wasn't just an even exchange. I mean, they were charged, you know, a pretty heavy fee to make that exchange. If they were Greek uh, or if they were Gentiles, the exchange, exchange rate was even higher. When they would purchase uh, animals for sacrifice, in this case, pigeons, there was a group of people that had tables set up with cages and they were making money hand over fist off of the people as they just came to worship God. And then not only that, but as the Bible says, there was a thoroughfare across the top of the Temple Mount because people did not want to walk all the way around the Temple Wall to get to the Valley Kidron to go up to the Mount of Olives and then down into uh, the Jordan Valley where the city of Jericho was. This is where a lot of priests live. And so it was like, hey, you know, why don't we just cut a path across the Temple Mount? Uh, and, and for them, it was just like, this, the sacredness of the place doesn't matter. It's really totally irrelevant. You know, we just, we just need to make a faster path so that we can get to where we want to go. All of this was disrespecting this, the sacredness and the sanctity of what was happening on the Temple Mount, which is why Jesus turned those tables over. This is righteous indignation. By the way, the king has every right because he is the king. I know some of us are like, man, that doesn't fit the framework in which I place Jesus. You know, he's this really gentle and meek and soft and really kind. His hands have no calluses. He's just, you know, he's just, he's always saying nice things and he's got a little lamb around his shoulders. And it's like, you read this and all that's blown up. And it's like, well, this is not out of character. This is not out of character because he is holy, he is righteous, and he is a God of love. And this was an expression of his righteous indignation which he had every right to express he does this when evening comes and then the next morning this is kind of the point of our message tonight the next morning as they're walking by this fig tree it is literally withered away to its roots i think the new king james version says that it's withered up from its roots and so Peter, remembering what Jesus had said, says, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. By the way, this is the only time in the life uh, and ministry of Jesus where his supernatural, miraculous power was used in a negative sense. It was used to bring death instead of bringing life. But just as Jesus had said, not only would no one ever eat from the tree again because there was no fruit, but the tree itself was withered away. So listen, the fig tree represents the nation of Israel. Jesus was coming to the nation as its king, expecting that there would be fruit, expecting that there would be, you know, not just, not just, the, um, not just the outward expression of a relationship with God, but real deep relationship with God, that people would be not only in love with God, loving him with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, but that they would also be living in anticipation and expectation of their Messiah. He came, and just like the fig tree had leaves, there were religious rituals that were being done. There were festivals that were being followed. There were Sabbaths that were being kept. 
There were days of fasting that were being observed. And all of this was, listen, all of this was just a veneer. All of this was just a show. All of this was literally just skin deep. There was really no fruit, just like the fig tree had no physical fruit, the nation of Israel had no spiritual fruit. And so as this is happening, both are happening simultaneously. I think that the disciples are putting the picture together and they're understanding that what was happening in the physical realm was just an illustration of what was happening in the spiritual realm. Let me just say to us tonight, you guys know this, that God wants more than just a a veneer of religiosity from us, right? God wants more than just uh, good Christian rituals being kept. God wants more than us just going through the motions. Um, God wants more than us thinking that somehow he's satisfied because there's been a, a little moral reform in our lives or you know there's some things that we do in the name of Jesus God wants more than that God wants more than a veneer God wants more than a show you know I I I do get concerned as a pastor because I think we've set up Christianity in our nation to make it easy to have a show of a relationship with God to have a veneer to be skin deep in our relationship with him but to have no real depth to have no real depth. And you know this can be very easy, right? The infrastructure's all set up. You roll into church, you do your thing, you've got, you've got your Christian bumper sticker, sticker, your radio stations on 90.5, there's things that you do. I'm not saying any of those things are necessarily bad, but sometimes we reduce our relationship with God to, to those things, and the truth is God wants so much more for us. What is happening here, and this is the powerful part, what's happening here is the new thing. It's the new era. It's the kingdom era. As he lays out this promise of answered prayer, what he's saying to his disciples is this, the authority and power of the kingdom has been delegated to my people. That's what's happening as the king. This whole religious system is, is dead. It never was able to offer you what it promised to offer. And now I have come as the king, and what I'm making available to my people is this. I'm providing them access to kingdom authority and kingdom power. I mean, there are amazing promises in these verses. He starts with simply by saying, have faith in God. Hey, church, have faith in God. I don't know what you're dealing with tonight, but have faith in God. I know as the worship team was leading us, Tony gave us the opportunity to speak the power of the name of Jesus over those things that may not have been mentioned in the verses of the song. What does that really mean? This is not like there's some, hey, magical equation, and if you just say his name, something's going to happen. No, this is an expression of faith. It's having faith in God. God, I'm speaking your name over my family. I'm speaking your name over my sickness. I'm speaking your name over my addiction. I'm speaking your name over my discouragement and depression. God, I'm speaking your name over my wayward children. I'm speaking your name over the problems that I have at work. I'm speaking your name over the financial issues that I'm struggling with because God is an expression of the the fact that I'm placing this in your hand. I'm trusting you with this. 
I'm declaring the name of Jesus over this as an expression of my relationship with you and my firm belief that you will always be faithful in my life. Hey, where is your faith? Where is your faith? Who is the object of your faith? You know this is true. So often we carry the burden instead of trusting it to God. We carry the burden. Man, we're all burdened. We're, all, we're loaded down. We're discouraged. And all the time God's like, hey, why, I got an idea. Why don't you hand that to me? Why don't you entrust that to me? The Bible says, cast your care unto him because he cares for you. The word cast means to roll it away to take your hands off of it and to roll it over to God. When our kids were growing up, we loved, we, we loved all sports. But at an early age, I would sit with uh, all three kids and we just would roll a ball back and forth to each other. And that's, that's the view, right? You're a child of God. Just like Alec would roll the ball away from himself to me and I would take it, you as a child of God are taking the care that's burdened your heart, the issue that you have, and you are rolling it over into the hands of your heavenly Father and you're trusting him with it. You say, man, that's really hard to do, Pastor. I did that today, but now it's back. I say, roll it again. Roll it again. Right? Sometimes the rolling has to happen over and over and over and over again. I'm not saying to you today, especially if you got an issue with kids or something that really strikes close to home, I'm not saying to you, it's like, hey, rolled it over and never think about it again. No, that you know. Sometimes it's like that ball, it keeps, sometimes it feels like it rolls back. But you've got to roll it back to him and you need to entrust him with it. He says this, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, check this out, does not doubt in his heart but believes that he, what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. So listen tonight, I want to encourage you with these things. Number one, have faith in God. Number two, do not doubt. Do not doubt. Believe that God is going to answer. I love the way that it's phrased here. He goes on to say, therefore I tell you whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you what? Believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Today you can pray with that type of confidence. Our confidence in prayer comes when we pray in Jesus' name. And I'm not saying, hey, you know, it's like an equation and you pray whatever you want and at the end you kind of punctuate your prayer with like a 10-4 good buddy over and out um, or in Jesus' name. You know, I want the Mercedes and I want the house up in Summerlin and um, I want the new clothes in Jesus' name. And, and just because you say, just because you drop the phrase in Jesus' name, somehow that that means that it's going to be yours. No, of course. Of course God's not that shallow. Of course God's not that trite. Right? Of course God is not that uncaring about your life. When you pray in Jesus' name, you're talking about your relationship with God first and foremost. You have communion with the Father through faith in the Son. You have access to God through faith in the King. Because you are a child of God through faith in Christ, you come not on your own merits. You come not on your own abilities. You come not because of the special gifts you bring. You come because you belong to Jesus Christ. He is your advocate. He is your interceder. He is the one who has gone before you. Yeah, yeah, that's where your confidence comes from. You don't just stand before God on your own. You stand before God with him, with the Son, 
who has taken pleasure in you. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. With confidence. Hey, you don't have to, you come, you come with humility. You come recognizing, uh, it, you come recognizing God's supremacy, but you can come with confidence because you come with Christ. When you pray in Jesus' name, it means that you're praying in alignment with his will. It means that you're praying in alignment with his will. You Listen, in other words, when you punctuate your prayer with, with in Jesus' name, you would better make sure that everything that you've been asking for is in alignment with his purpose. Like, why would you do anything otherwise? And yet, you know, I think that we today in modern Christianity have absolutely and totally confused this. It's like, God, I want the pink dress. Not me, somebody else. God, God, I want, I want social media success. God, I want to go viral. You know, God, I want people to like me. I want a happy life. And I'm not saying to you today that God's not going to get you the pink dress. Um, if you're a guy, the answer is no. I'm not saying today that God's not going to allow something to go viral, right? But, but you know that our prayers are just so shallow, like, what about what God wants? Have you thought about that? Like, what about what God wants? What about spending time in his word and discovering what his will for your life is? What about before you submit the petition, you ask him to place his will upon your heart? Look, what about the kingdom? What about the kingdom? Jesus taught his disciples, when you pray, our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Look, this establishes the framework of our prayer life and our petitions. It's not about me. It's not about my advancement. It's not about my satisfaction. It's not about my happy life. And don't get me wrong, I do believe that God wants to bless you. And I believe it's the pleasure of God to, to bring happiness to you. I do believe that. I'm going to share a little bit about that this Sunday. But before we even get to that, we should be thinking, God, your kingdom come. Your will be done. God, what do you want to do in my family? What do you want to do in my life? God, what do you want to do in my church? What do you want to do in my city? God, what do you want to do in this world? And the third thing, the third and final thing that praying in the name of Jesus means is it's praying for his glory. Like at the end of the day when we are praying, we want God to be glorified. We want God to be glorified, and this shapes our prayer. It helps us not just to know what to ask for. Listen, it helps us not just to know what to ask for. It helps us to know why to ask for it. Why are we asking? Why are we submitting the petition? Is our purpose really to see God glorified? He says, have faith in God. He says, do not doubt. Um, and then, of course, he says, and whenever you stand praying, this is a simple one, all of this, all of this trusting in God comes through prayer. The greatest way to demonstrate your faith is in your prayer life. The greatest way to demonstrate your faith is in your prayer life because when you pray, you are showing God that you are trusting in him and not in yourself. A.J. Gordon said this. He said, you can do more than pray after you prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. 
And F.F. Bruce said this, he said, the greatest tragedy in life is not unanswered prayer, it's unoffered prayer. Kingdom authority and power is accessed and experienced through prayer. The level of your kingdom influence is going to be directly correlated to your prayer life. I don't care how talented you are. I don't care how great of a speaker you are. I don't care how charismatic you are. I don't care how well-networked you are. If you want to have an influence for the kingdom, it's going to be directly correlated to your prayer life. So church, if you want to have an impact in the world, you've got to be praying. You've got to be seeking the face of the Father, and you've got to be bringing your petitions to him. The final piece of this is sincerity, right? Verse 28, it's just interesting how he caps it off. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. The final thing is this. Hey, when you come in faith, when you come in faith, and when you come in confidence, and when you pray in my name, when you're communing with the Father and he's revealing his will and you are shaping your petition to be in alignment with his purposes and for his glory, make sure that you are living a spiritually sincere life. Make sure that you are not living with a double standard. Make sure that you're not speaking out of two sides of your mouth, right? The one side saying, God, I want this and I love you and I'm for you and your purpose. And then the other side saying, I can't stand that person and that person's a jerk and I'm holding a grudge here and I'm going to whip out this text to this person. I'm going to let them have it. I'm going to level them and then go to God in prayer. Dear Lord, dear Lord, you know, you're all like wild on your social media and ripping everyone. This is a horrible way to say it, a new one. Like you're just on it, man. And you're there's fire coming from your keyboard, and everyone is being decimated on the other end, and then it's like, and dear God, you know, just, I just pray that you would bless me, and I pray that you would provide for me, and God's like, cut the crap out. Cut it out. Cut that out. Don't do that. There is so much hypocrisy in the church. There is so much double standard within our lives. There is so much nonsense that we tolerate, and then there's this facade that we put on. And you know what? You can fool everybody all of the time, but you can fool God none of the time. You can't fool him all, any of the time. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, hey, listen, clean it up in here. Clean it up in here. And when I say clean it up, I'm not saying that we forgive ourselves of our sins. I'm saying it's like, Lord, I'm going to confess. I'm going to repent Cleanse my heart with a clean hand, with clean hands and a pure heart before a petition comes. God, I want to be right on the inside. I want to be right on the outside. I want to be handling things in a way that honors you and that expresses who you are with other people. And God, if I've, if I've blown it, if I've made mistakes, if there are people I've run over before I come to the altar and offer my Gift of worship to you, I'm going to go clean that up. I'm going to go clean that up first. How much more powerful would the church be in the hand of God if we would live with that type of sincerity? If we would be, you want to be intolerant about something? You want to be intolerant about something? Be intolerant about the sin in your life. Be intolerant about that. Like that's, that's where it starts. Somebody said this about this um, section. He said the culture of prayer is a forgiving spirit. And I thought, man, that's so good. Because when our prayers are framed by the gospel, 
that God has forgiven us, it helps us to ensure that what we're praying for fits within that framework. What we're going to do tonight is this. The worship team's going to come up, and um, it just would be wrong tonight for us not to have the opportunity to access, to take the opportunity and access heaven's resources. You know, there's a song that we sing, um, and it goes something like this. Tony would know better than me, but we're pulling heaven down. Um, I just want to tell you guys, no one here pulls heaven down. Jesus brought heaven to us. He brought heaven to us. Heaven's been placed in our hands. The resources of heaven have been placed in our hands. We don't have to pull it down because Christ provided it through the cross. The question is this. Are we taking what's been delegated to us, the authority and the power of heaven? That's what he did to his disciples. He's like, hey, that, that system is over and those religious leaders are done. It's you now. You have full access to heaven's resources. I'm delegating the authority and the power to your life. And so, listen, you don't live a weak, anemic, spiritual life. You are a Christian. You are empowered by God's spirit. You have the full resources of heaven because the king himself has made them available to you, and you access them in prayer. You access them by having faith in God. You access them by being confident that when you're praying according to his will and for his glory, it will be done before you see it. Before you see it, I want that level of confidence. We have an awakened event coming up. I want that level of confidence for we know it to be God's will. The word is taught here. The gospel is preached. I want that confidence that we're walking in the power of God's Holy Spirit. I want there to be fruit, real spiritual fruit that is pleasing so that when Jesus comes to inspect this tree, he's not just going to find a facade of flowers and leaves, but he's going to find real fruit that pleases his heart. And so, so, so before we walk out the doors, now, now's our moment. Now's our moment. Now is the time for us to start this type of prayer. Maybe your prayer life is just killer, and God bless you for it. I bet you could grow. Maybe tonight your prayer life is miserable, and it's just like a smoking flax, and it needs to be revived. Well, now's the moment to begin that. And so I'm not really sure how this evening is going to end up. Tony and the worship team are here to lead us in worship, uh, but let's have a time of prayer right now. Let's have a time of prayer. You can pray by yourself. You can pray with somebody else. Um, I'm going to have some of the pastors and some of our uh, women leaders come forward today. And Tristan, if you can come forward too, that'd be great. And today, if you need prayer, babe, if you want to come forward, that'd be awesome. If you want to come forward today and get some prayer, we want to pray for you.